0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a purposeful and passionate life. A couple of quick things today. First, the sabotage report is still available. You can get it at plantyourself.com slash sabotage, and that can be all lowercase. It's a report on how you can stop those moments of self-sabotage that occur near the very beginning of a habit change or behavior change. And the metaphor that I use is one day, many years ago, I stumbled out of the house tired. I had to go somewhere early Sunday morning, and I wasn't really thinking too hard, as you'll see. And I got in my car and turned in the key and backed up out of the driveway. But I only had backed up about three feet when I hit another car. And the other car, of course, turned out to be mine. I had gotten in the car nearest the house in a single-lane driveway and rear-ended my, or I guess front-ended, the other car, the one I should have gotten in. And that kind of stayed with me as a metaphor for when we start something and we just start it poorly and we stop ourselves in our tracks. And that can happen with behavior change when we want to start exercising, when we want to start eating better, meditating that these little things at the beginning can stop us before we even get momentum. And so I wrote a report to help people avoid that. I can't help you from uh, stop you from driving into your own car, but I can help you interpreting failures and successes Properly putting them in perspective and having the right mindset when you begin a habit change. And again, you can get that at plantyourself.com/sabotage. And if you know anyone else who might benefit from it, please send them there as well. Second thing is, I'm happy to report that the support for Plant Yourself is growing on Patreon. I'm now over one quarter of the way to my first stretch goal, a thousand dollars a month, and I committed to, when I reach that goal, producing an extra episode per month on Ask Me Almost Anything. So an AMAA episode of Plant Yourself. And I don't want to make a big deal of this. I don't want to take a ton of time. But just to remind you that this podcast so far has been a labor of love and it wants to continue to be a labor of love. And that's why I don't charge anything for it. The work I do, almost all of it, 99% of the work I do, is freely available to everyone. And if you value that, then one way to show it is to reciprocate the love in a gift. And the best way to do that is through Patreon, which you can go to patreon.com slash plantyourself, or you can go to plantyourself.com and click on the Patreon button. Both will, will get you there. And if there's some amount per month that you can comfortably afford that reflects the value that you get from the podcast and the alignment with the mission that it uh, wants to achieve in the world, that would be peachy, awesome. I'll leave that alone for now, and we'll get to today's episode. So my guest is Vic Strecker. And I heard about Vic from Brad Stahlberg, whom I interviewed a few weeks ago on his new book, Peak Performance and he had referred to this guy, Vic Strecker, who had an amazing story. And in fact, the entire third section of peak performance was about a concept that surprised me, purpose. Like when you think about the best athletes, the best performers, the best musicians, the best CEOs, the best doctors, you think about sort of talent, perseverance, focus, luck. But they say that Finding a purpose is actually as important as anything else. And they got a lot of their research from Vic Strecker. So I contacted Vic and he very kindly, he's a a busy man, a big deal. And he kindly agreed to spend an hour on the phone with me on your behalf. And what I got from the conversation, aside from a ton of useful information, is a sense that I was talking to a really developed, compassionate, wise human soul. And this happens a lot on the podcast and it's one of the joys of doing it and just sort of basking in the presence of someone who has gone through a lot of suffering and has attained wisdom and compassion and is on a mission to share that and enrich the entire world. So rather than give you more background or more teaser, let's get right into this wonderful conversation with beautiful soul and brilliant scientist, Vic Strecker. So without further ado, Vic Strecker, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here, Howard.
0: So you have an amazing journey with incredible ups and downs in it, and I wonder if you could just start by... Talking about your your professional career as a uh, as a professor in the in the health in the health studies and health and public health field, sort of bef- sure. before before all this. Sure. Happened. Yeah.
1: Well, my undergraduate degree was actually in uh, the, the quote harder sciences. Um, I now don't typically call them the harder sciences. I think the hardest sciences the science of changing one's behavior or changing your own (laughs) behavior. And I am a behavioral scientist and I became a behavioral scientist after I realized that over 50% over half of disease and death is related to our lifestyles related to the decisions that we make about our lifestyles. And that could be the types of things we eat or, um, you know, whether we smoke or not, or the kind of, uh, you know, stressful or non-stressful activities we get, engage in. Um, of course, screening behaviors and things like that, you know, are important, but but the really big issues are, are lifestyle factors. And I thought, wow, that's a tough area to crack, but it's so important. And, you know, the average clinician, even in four years of medical school or nursing school, gets a very, very brief amount of time spent on, of training spent on how to help people change their lives. Even though that is such a huge portion of of their work, I thought we need stronger science in this area. And so that's that's what I've endeavored to do in my career. I've really, I've thought for over 30 years that this is an area that's highly neglected. Um, It's neglected by the National Institute of Health. Uh, in my opinion, relative to, you know, the amount of spending for research relative to these, quote, harder or, quote, basic sciences. And yet, you know, I find a lot of people shying away from the behavioral sciences because they're complicated. They're sometimes somewhat hard to touch. You know, it's hard to talk about stress or hard to talk about social support um, or what i 've been engaged in lately, purpose in life, relative to the amount of pressure that 's exerted on an artery, for example
0: yeah well it 's certainly um, you know hard to to measure that and isolate things like that in the laboratory
1: yeah, it is, and you know you talk about diet, boy, is that a tough one to measure and it 's you know the, the studies to follow people up for many years are very complex and a lot of, you know, selection biases involved in it. So it's really complex stuff. But I don't mind the complexity when I understand how important it is. So that's something that I've, I've always tried to endeavor in.
0: Right. Now, so before the call, I was I was on a, the, the Dung Beetle website reading yeah. the, uh, <laughs> the excerpt. And we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, the right. excerpt from, from, from your comic book. And yeah. it, what what it reminded me of is you're talking about, you know, your your second grade teacher trying to get you to perform better by smacking your, your knuckles right. with a ruler. It, when when yeah. I was in – when I went back to school for, uh, for health studies for a, a master's of public health, I, and this was in 1993, the model uh-huh. that I learned was the health belief model. Um, right, and right, which, yep. Right, which is basically – You scare people with the the risks, and you entice them with the benefits, and then people will make good choices.
1: Yeah, and in fact, what's funny about that is my mentors developed the health belief model, and I've written a bit about the health belief model in my past, Um, but yeah, um, the researchers of that really did create a stronger science. In fairness to them, they created a much stronger science from just the information or educational history of our field, which was just you fill a person up with information and suddenly they'll change. And we know that that doesn't work. So the people who developed the health belief model, which talks about the perception of benefits of making a change, the perception of barriers you might have. But central, right at the heart of the health belief model, is perception of threat. And the perception of threat relates to how susceptible we feel we are to various diseases or negative outcomes and how severe those are. And and the idea then is that you really try to build a sense of threat in a person, a sense of fear in a person. You scare a person. And yet when you really think about it, what's the number one reason people smoke cigarettes? Well they do because to control stress. What did we just do when we told a person they're going to die if they don't quit smoking or horrible diseases will occur? Um, You know, they may end up smoking even more. How about eating too? We all know when we're watching some scary movie or when we're involved, really involved and engaged in a sporting event that's very close and we're scared, fearful that our team is going to lose. We eat more. And, and so this perception of threat actually probably works in the opposite direction in many cases and that's what we found in our own research
0: right. so in the 90s you you kind of deviated from that model and you ended up creating a a company right that you ended up selling to to J&J Can you tell, tell me a little yeah. bit about what what that what what that was about
1: yeah well i kind of had an epiphany in my life that i i started realizing that I may die, if I died, on my headstone would be the number of journal articles that I wrote for scientific journals and the amount of grant funding I got from the National Institutes of Health and maybe my frequent flyer miles, (laughs) but little else. I, I really started thinking, you know, what... What will my legacy be? What will I have left in this brief period of time that I have on this planet? And I started realizing not a lot. Would I really reach that many people with my work? Or was I really just, you know, working hard to get tenure in the university so that I, and live this nice, comfortable professor life that may or may not have a big impact in the bigger picture? And I thought, I have the opportunity to have a bigger impact. So I created a business called Health Media and not to make money so much as to reach more people with the kind of work that we're doing in our research. There is this advent of the internet at the time in the in the mid-1990s, and very few people had access to the internet, but we started predicting that people would. And so we started saying, well, what should go in the internet to help people with their health? And we thought, well, not just more information. And you see, even now, the internet is filled with just information as if you know, pouring information to the person's head will suddenly cause behavior change. But we've known for 50 years that that's not the case. So how can we help coach a person? How can we give just the right help at the right time and give the right kind of advice and give advice that's very tailored to a person's needs? So we were doing a lot of research in that area, and we offered all of our work to for free to the Centers for Disease Control. And we said, there's going to be, you know, the internet is coming, and we should be building that. We have all these software algorithms we've built that tailor information, health information to people's specific needs, dietary information to their food preferences, for example, or whether they shop for food or whether they know how to cook well, things like that. We really tailored the information. We knew that that really helped people change their lives, change their diet. And and the CDC came back and said, well, no one's gonna use the internet for their health. And you know, in fairness to them, this is in the mid to later 90s, but they just didn't see it. It was very clear. And, and these were experts in communication at the CDC. And I I started really becoming depressed. I just thought, I'm going to go to my grave with this headstone Um, and and that just has a number of journal articles on it. So I created this company called Health Media, which was designed to reach lots and lots of people with tailored health coaching. Digitally tailored health coaching, and we would license this health coaching out to large HMOs like Kaiser Permanente um, or to big insurers like Blue Crosses around the country or to big employer groups. And it worked very well, and we ended up reaching over 55 million people with that programming. And then the company became really attractive to other companies, big corporations, and Johnson & Johnson wanted to turn it into a centerpiece for their uh, health and wellness programming that they built. So um, they really accelerated the, the reach that we have as well. So that turned into a, a way that uh, we ended up reaching more people than I ever could have through my journal articles or through working with, you know, kind of the standard public health institutions in our country.
0: Gotcha. So what's, what sort of studies were you doing at that point? What were what were you curious about and what were you finding?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, well, I was really intrigued in what makes people tick. Like, what ha- what stimulates change? You know, at the, at the the substrate of it all is why are people defensive? Why do people say, "Don't tell me anything. I don't want to change my life"? Um, who really could use it? Would really benefit from it? You think? Uh, why don't people change? And why why do our interventions have such a minimal effect? And so that was the big, fundamental question for me. Uh, you know what are the motives for change, and how do you help people make deeper, longer-lasting behavior changes in their lives so that they live longer and they live better lives overall? And one of the ways we found was that you could tailor health information. So if I gave you, for example, just uh, let's, let's stick with diet and and eating, which you're obviously very involved with and the expert in. Um, you know, the average cookbook is, the person uses only a handful of recipes in an average cookbook. There might be a thousand recipes. They may well use just five recipes in that on average, or ten recipes. Now, if I could find out a little bit more about what you really love to eat, the kinds of foods that you love to eat, the cuisine that you love to eat, the tastes, the aromas, the colors, the textures of foods that you love to eat, I might be able to just snip out exactly the kinds of foods that you love and put those together. And on the basis of whether you're a good cook or a not so good cook, how much time you have to cook, uh, how many ingredients you enjoy cooking with, what access you have to different ingredients, uh, all of those things, you put all that together and I could tailor a cookbook for you that would maybe be 10 pages long or 20 pages long. And you'd be so much more likely to use it and benefit from it. Um, Does that make sense? That's the kind of thing that we would build. Mm Mm-hmm. And those are the intriguing questions because then you ask yourself, okay, if I can tailor information and I can use computers and software to start tailoring really amazing things to people, what do you tailor on? There's so many different factors to tailor on. And then you say, do I tailor on fear? Do I tailor on uh, positive motivations? Do I tailor on self-confidence or skills? Do I uh, tailor on your lifestyle? What what are the things I tailor on? And that's so important.
0: Right. And I, I, I love, first of all, that you were looking at studies of, let's say, you know, a success rate of 7% versus 3%, and yeah. you were a- you were asking the question, why are we failing, as opposed to the, the kind of studies that I was looking at, which is, well, look, we just doubled our success rate, even though in context <laughs> yeah. it was utterly dismal. The, exactly. the second thing is that I, I don't know if you anticipated it, but the idea of taking a 1,000-page cookbook and turning it into 10 or 20 – kind of um presaged the the internet and yeah. this this information glut where all of a sudden bigger is not better but but giving people just the right thing in the shortest amount of time you know whether it's attention spans or just being yeah. busy that, <laughs> that
1: now, that's
0: in, that's become much more important
1: in fairness though, too. My wife is an artist and she's always searching for new experiences. And so when in the nineties, I was developing all these computer tailored programs that would cut a lot down to a little, she'd say, well, what you're really doing, Vic, is digging people's ruts deeper. And I said, "Wait a second, what are you talking about?" And she said, "Well, you start with what everybody's pre- what an individual 's preferences are, and you start building around those preferences, but what if they don 't know about kale? What if they don 't huh. know about something totally new in their lives you know and i 'm speaking metaphorically, but you know what what you 're doing in tailoring is cutting people 's options off for exploration, and you 're basically creating what is now called a filter bubble. So everything is filtered down to a bubble that you live in. And of course, now we're living in filter bubbles politically in terms of the friends we have. Um, It's pretty amazing the downside of tailoring as well. And I think we have to acknowledge that fact, too, that we wake up in the morning and we start turning on news feeds that totally tend to agree with us. And, you know, as a result, now we create huge schisms where we don't even understand what another side is even thinking or how they're thinking or the stories they're listening to. We just don't even get them. And and that's one product of tailoring and computers.
0: Oh, that's that's really interesting.
1: So it's not all good. In other words, you know, it could well be that you want a person exploring in a thousand page cookbook every once in a while. It may be just grand to be able to sit down with with an amazing huge cookbook and just say wow I'm just gonna like close my eyes thumb through a bunch of pages and put my finger on something I'm going to cook no matter what (laughs) Uh and and that would be an awesome thing to try every once in a while and with computer software it it kind of allows you to kind of you never end up doing things like that
0: right unless you unless every program has aI'm feeling lucky button that's right <laughs>
1: exactly, but anyway you, you see the point um, we can change more behavior, we can make people more efficient with what we do. Um, I just wanted to make sure that people understood, and you know that there can be a downside to that too, where you're just not exploring anymore new cool stuff
0: right, and i th- I think that probably relates to your the question that I just put in bold about why are people defensive, right? The, the, yeah. the, the un- unwillingness to explore is probably part and parcel with some sort of you know, fear that also drives defensiveness, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, and as you know from my graphic novel, that comic book you mentioned called On Purpose, um, I view this metaphorically as a castle wall, that we have this castle wall around us, and, you know, that's often called our, the ego, And this ego is our defense mechanism. And it really is like a psychological immune system. It's good for us. We don't, you know, a person who's completely ego free may be easily persuaded to buy something after they've seen something on a billboard. Or if somebody says you're not a good person, they may go, wow, I guess you're right. You know, and, and to some extent, we do need an ego defense. But at the same time, our defensive walls have grown thicker and thicker. And we live within these bubbles or, or um, ego walls, and we tend to just bring in people who totally agree with us, or ideas that totally agree with us, or foods that totally, we think totally agree with us, or match.com, or whatever, you know, dates that totally agree with us, and maybe it's cool sometimes to go outside your ego, um, and that can happen if your ego, if you every once in a while open that drawbridge, and you know, maybe watch a TV show that you're pretty sure are not going to agree with. Listen to a commentator that you're pretty sure are not going to agree with. Um, I think that's a very healthy thing to do.
0: Okay. So, so that's kind of the the setting of your, of your academic career. And then, and then there's this parallel track of your, your family life and the story of your daughter, Julia. Can you share that with us?
1: Sure. Um, So, yeah, first of all, we have two daughters and our older daughter, Rachel, is 31 now and she's amazing. She works for the Aspen Institute and is one of the directors of what's called the New Voices Program and goes to sub-Saharan Africa and finds these amazing heroes and gives them big voices. She's really living a huge, big life. And our younger daughter, Julia, was born very healthy um, in 1990, but about six months into her life, she caught a chickenpox virus that typically we all get, causes a rash and a fever or something. But this this chickenpox virus attacked her heart and it destroyed her heart. And her only hope for survival at all was a heart transplant. And at the time, very few kids had received heart transplants. And in fact, what was known as a roughly 50% of kids waiting for hearts died before they got one. And even if you did get one, uh, roughly 50% of kids died within the first five years of getting a transplant. So um, of course this is pretty devastating because we thought we had a very healthy child and suddenly she started getting smaller and, um, and then we were told she would die without this kind of, crazy thing a heart transplant we'd never thought about that certainly never thought that that would be an issue for us to deal with with a child of ours and so we had to ask ourselves uh, around what we call the gathering place which is our dinner table Um, and we still have a gathering place we still do eat dinner at you know at the table rather than just sitting watching what the Cardassian sisters are doing And, but back then in 1990, we asked ourselves, should we even list her for a heart um, or should we let her die in peace? And it was a tough decision. I I will be honest though. It was impossible for us to think about her just gradually getting sicker and sicker and weaker and just dying um, in front of our eyes. It was just such an impossible thought. So we did very carefully consider a heart transplant. And we did decide to list her, but only with the consideration that we would try to give her the biggest life possible. If she lived to be two, three years old, if she lived to be 10, she lived to be 20, if she lived to be 70, we would make sure that every year, every day, would be filled with a big life. A life, not like a a life going to Disney world every day or meeting Cameron Diaz or Brad Pitt every day, but it would be a different kind of life where she would have goals and purpose in her life and meaning in her life and friends in her life and um, things like that. And if she had those things and love uh, we felt that no matter when she passed away, not knowing that, you know, when she would, uh, that, that we'd feel okay about having done this. And so she became one of the first children in our country to get a heart, a new heart. And uh, she lived a very big life, uh, but it was with struggle too. She was in the hospital a lot. She was a very immune suppressed, but she lived a big life. She was on a softball team, a Girl Scouts, you know, group. And she just did a lot of different things. She was, She went to different parts of the world, to London, to Australia. She just had a big life and she wanted to give back and become a nurse. Uh, so she went to the University of Michigan School of Nursing when she was 18 years old. And then she, she turned 19, and we um, we went on vacation together in the Caribbean for her um, spring break. And she very suddenly passed away there, and unexpectedly. She just died of a heart attack in the middle of the night in her sleep. And so when that happened, um, you know, her, the whole point of her life was living a big life um, day to day, as if she may die at any time. And that really changed my own life. I started thinking about my headstone as I had talked about before Howard, and and that suddenly there is, you know, I stopped thinking that I might live forever. And I stopped even worrying about living for a very long time. I started thinking about living every day Uh, Mark Twain said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't care about dying, but I care a lot about not living. And Mm. that's how our whole family started acting in their lives. And that completely changed my life Uh, while she was alive. And after she died, I felt like living a life like that moved my life from a black and white kind of existence to a technicolor existence. Every day became important. And, I realized that in this brief time we're on this earth, that it's important to do something with that life, as opposed to watching reality television all the time or watching anything that happens to be on a sports channel. Um, You know, We care so much about what our sports team is gonna do or what the Cardassian sisters are doing, often more so than what our family is doing or what our neighbors are doing or what our community is doing, our loved ones. And to me, I decided anyway to interpret that as trying to live a life with purpose and when my daughter died I felt like and this is seven years ago she died in uh, 2010 I felt like I'd lost my purpose that was a big purpose in my life to give her a big life and I had a big existential experience out on the water on Lake Michigan in a kayak and I describe that in two books, one is on purpose, and the other is a more recent book called Life on Purpose. And I described this experience of being out on the lake and feeling my daughter in me just a few months after she had died and realizing if I don't repurpose my life, if I don't build new purpose in my life, I'll die. And I have a lot more to live for if I can repurpose my life, but I have nothing to live for if I can't. And I came back to shore and decided I was going to start teaching every one of my students as if they're my own daughter, as if they're Julia. That was my work purpose in my life. I started building other purposes in my life. And it's not that I am perfect at any of those things. I try to be an engaged husband, an engaged father to Rachel, an engaged um, grandfather now to Madeline Julia, my our new granddaughter, um, an engaged son to my parents. Thank you. Yeah. So all of those things create role conflict because I have a big, hairy, audacious purpose. And so I feel, wow, I need more energy in my life. I need more self-control or willpower in my life every day. And so suddenly my health behaviors, let's go all the way back to our early discussion rather than needing to be scared. You know, if you don't, you know, eat better, you'll get sick and you'll die. I don't care about dying. I really don't. But I care a lot about not living as Mark Twain said, and I care a lot about not achieving my purpose. I really want to work toward my purpose every single day to align to this purpose. And if I have a lot of students, which I do, I have over 300 students I need to, and I'm treating them all as if they're my own daughter. And I also then have to get home and be fully where, you know, and engaged with my spouse or with my older daughter or my friends or my parents. Uh, I need energy every day and I need self-control. So I need to sleep well. I need to be present every day. I need to be active every day. I need to eat well. I need to be creative every day. So I start thinking about health behaviors that give me energy and willpower to be aligned with my purpose. And that's a very positive way to live, I've discovered. And I've done it just, you know, by kind of noodling through my own life and what it takes to live a big life. And, you know, when she died, when Julia died, I realized I'm if I can't fix myself, what good am I as a behavioral scientist? So I worked in this overall model and and tried to build uh, programming around this to help me and help others.
0: So like the. The feeling I get is that, you know, you were deeply involved in health behaviors, in in the tailoring process, in algorithms, in understanding the research. But what yeah. happened, the, the gift that you got from Julia's life. And it was a gift, death, yeah. And legacy was like you, you discovered an entirely new fuel source to power health behaviors.
1: Yeah. I boy, what a great way to put it. <laughs> um it it, it was It became kind of a motivational magnet, but I like the term fuel source for me. It was what has what's funny is when you live a purposeful life, you get more energy, but you also need energy and, you know, vitality in order to live a big purposeful life. So it's a very positive circle. And so I start thinking I'm not going to eat well so that I live longer. I'm going to eat well so that I can live in alignment with my purpose. And when I'm living in alignment with that, even goes back to Aristotle, he called this eudaimonic well-being or eudaimonic happiness, which is living in alignment with your daemon, your inner self, your true self, your transcending self. And what's interesting about that, I think, Howard, is when when you live for other things, for things bigger than yourself, you're kind of rising above your castle wall, you're transcending that castle wall, and you actually do better
0: yourself. Then, yeah. So, w- one of the and, yeah, so you, you figure this out sort of for yourself and in your own life, and then you know, in in the book Living on Purpose, which I just finished, you you present a lot of research. So, there was a study by um, uh, Barbara Fredrickson, right? So, yeah. the, the functional genomic perspective on human well being <laughs> that said, isn't that amazing? That, that, yeah, <clears throat> that basically. If, if people who are more eudaimonic, who are transcending themselves with higher purpose, have better um, gene function, less inflammatory exactly. gene expression, an antibody yeah. and antiviral response. So yeah, like stronger euda-
1: antibody response, right.
0: So, so the caring more about a transcendent purpose than things like wealth and power and status and comfort is actually better for your body.
1: Yeah, amazingly, what 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 Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina found was she first asked people about their happiness level, and and then she asked about the type of happiness, and it goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle said there's two types of happiness. There's hedonic happiness, and we know about hedonism or pleasure seeking, and we all enjoy that. You know, we all enjoy pleasure so we we love good food or good you know drink or good sex or whatever those things are and that and he said that's fine Aristotle said no problem but if that's all we live for it's like we're grazing animals and as I say in the book we all like to graze and that's fine but if that's all we live for that's a pretty empty life and then there's eudaimonic happiness or well-being and this is where we're living in alignment with with our true self, our transcending self. And we're thinking about other people and we're thinking about empathy and love and compassion and support and care. And when we're living with that, he said, that's what really makes us human. And those two areas, those two sources of happiness um, both make us happy. It turns out Barbara Fredrickson said, and in fact, we can't tell, whether a person's happy eudaimonically or happy hedonically, um, just on the face of it, everybody, those two kinds of people seem happy. But in terms of physiology, they're 180 degrees different. Um, Their gene expression of pro-inflammatory cells, as you were saying, uh, are much higher if you're just hedonically happy. And they're much lower if you're eudaimonically happy, if you're transcending. Whereas your antibody cell production, which is good for you, that's like really high if you are eudaimonically happy on average and very low among hedonically happy people. And when we think in the West about, if we just ask the average person in Western culture, what does happiness mean? They say, well, it would all relate to pleasure. It would relate to hedonic happiness. We've kind of lost that sense that we can be very happy by giving to other people. At least a lot of us have.
0: Right. Well, it's it's such a wonderful sort of, you know, irony or, or, or. Yeah, paradox. it isn't irony. Yeah. It, it is like the, exactly the, that. Like the most selfish thing I can do for myself is to transcend myself to a higher purpose.
1: I, I, I know people who do that. They say, I actually am very selfish. And so I do things for other people. Um, there are a couple of very good studies that are long-term studies that have looked at businesses who have revenue transcending mission statements and really live uh, in a, in a way their company survives and lives in a way that transcends and feels that it's more important than revenue. And they end up making more revenue and not by a little, by a huge amount. So these companies that have revenue transcending purposes, make more revenue individuals who have, uh, uh, individual or self transcending purposes do better themselves
0: right i i, I love that
1: um. yeah it's it's a secret it's a, it's almost like the secret of life in a way, in a way that you know i i talk i was recently speaking to a group uh Of United Auto Workers, benefits managers, and counselors, uh, and especially rehab counselors, many of whom had gone through rehab themselves through drug and alcohol rehabilitation. And I was having dinner with a, a couple of them, and they were saying, Yeah, when I got out of jail, for, you know, I was, you know, doing a lot of horrible things, got out of jail, and the person who was helping me told me, you can't take the first step until you start thinking about helping other people. As soon as you start, and they would say uniformly, as soon as I start helping other people with their problem, and I was a mess myself, I had no money. I had just gotten out of jail. I had, you know, I was in the dumps. And as soon as I started helping other people, I started picking myself up. I could start helping myself that way. Pretty amazing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that really fascinated me as a as a practitioner is how helping people uncover or develop or rediscover their purpose helps them change health behaviors. So again, now com- coming yeah. full circle, that this this is like the, the, the magic pill that if you could bottle it, you know you'd uh, you you'd make trillions <laughs> of dollars. Right, so yeah. how, how does that work? How do, what, what's the relationship with someone having a transcendent purpose and being able to say no to the donut or the cigarette or to get up yeah. at six in the morning and go for their workout?
1: Well, it's funny. This this came from my own anecdotal information. I'd be interested in yours as well. But uh, in a long time ago, I was helping. You know, like twenty five years ago, I was helping smokers quit smoking. And we would put them through a plan. And, you know, we had a very elaborate plan, a couple week long plan. And every day they would do something different. And we had it all mapped out for people. And in fact, some people would just start quitting on their own, just very suddenly. We go, no, no, don't quit suddenly. Go through the plan. Make sure you've gone, you know, be careful of that because you'll relapse otherwise. You'll go back to smoking if you don't follow the plan. And, and I'd ask, well, why'd you just suddenly quit? And they'd say, well, you know, my kids in the back seat of the car were coughing, and they just said, Dad, um, we can't breathe back here. And it was right then and there I realized I'm actually hurting my children. And I stopped then and there, and I never looked back. And I thought, no, that kind of sudden quitting, that's not going to be effective. Well, it turns out I was dead wrong. The people who are sudden epiphany type of quitters who go through this big experience like, whoa. I need to change my life. Those people are twice as likely to still be off cigarettes 10 years later. Um, So I was dead wrong. And I started thinking, what causes the epiphany? What causes that sudden change in your life? Like, you know, the gasp, I need to change. You know, it's the Saul on the road to Damascus. I mean, he becomes Paul. Bam. I'm a new person. And by the way, every religion has those kinds of epiphany moments for people. And most of us have probably had some kind of, you know, crossroads experience, you know, I need to change or I will die. I certainly had it myself right out in Lake Michigan. So I wanted to get to that moment. Like, how do we help create those epiphany moments for people?
0: And what, what, what did you discover?
1: Well, one thing that causes that is if you can help a person start thinking about their core values, what do you care about most in your life? And you actually, I do this now with big audiences. I have them stop and uh, say, what are the things you value the most? Write them down for the next two minutes. Just write down the things that you value that care about the most. Write it down. Think about it. Now let's think about what would be on your headstone. And I know it's not a comfortable thought for you to think about what would be on your headstone, but what would be on that headstone? What would be said at your memorial service? What kind of people would you want there? Um, What would you want people to say about you? And people don't like to think about that. My students certainly don't, or if I'm giving a talk, a speech somewhere, they may not want to think about that, but they start thinking about it and going, wow, you got me thinking about something really important in my life that I don't think about ever. And that starts... Creating this kind of epiphany moment. Oh my god I have to live my life as if I might die tomorrow And you know, here's here's another thought about this the stoic philosophers. We always think about the ancient uh, Stoics, you know, like Marcus Aurelius Seneca. These were famous Stoics from ancient Rome they would wake up every morning and say I'm gonna die today. I may well die can you imagine that? Like Mrs. Aurelius might go, Marcus, would you stop that? You know, every morning you say you're going to die and you come home and you're not dead. And and Marcus would go, well, you know, I'm thinking about my death because I'll actually live a bigger life than today. Or I might, you know, literally, Stoic philosophers would sometimes kiss their children at night and say, you won't wake up in the morning. And imagine then when the child does wake up, how elated that parent is and how much they want to spend quality time then with that child you're alive that's essentially what julia did for us that was a gift that she gave us and it was obviously at the cost of her and i fully recognize that but the way to pay that back and to express my gratitude for that gift is to live a life myself of purpose if i can
0: Right, and and you have a, a a beautiful analogy in the book about you know the way economists look at the marginal value of more money. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. That for every dollar you have over a million, it's 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 worth less to you emotionally, psychologically, and even functionally. But we don't think about the, our time on this planet that way. Yeah.
1: If we if we had. Um you know, $1,000 in our pocket in $5 bills and a person on the street asks for five, it'd be pretty easy. You'd be pretty likely to say, yeah, sure, no problem. If you only had $10 in your wallet, you know, each dollar becomes more valuable to you. And that $5 is, you know, maybe less likely to be given up, um, we we tend to think about our lives as being kind of, you know, limitless, that we have as many years, we don't even think about the finiteness of our lives. But as soon as we start doing that, we start, that's, that's why I bring up this concept of a headstone or a memorial service. The thought that we will, that we're only here for a brief period of time, helps us think more carefully about the, Minutes that we spend in our life. Do I really want to spend these minutes complaining about not finding a parking spot? Do I want to spend it with this committee that is talking about a bunch of crap, you know, for the next hour or two just to listen to themselves talk? You know, I'm in academia. I'm used to those kind of meetings, and I got tired of them and I stopped going. I just won't go. Uh, I mean, my life is too short to spend listening to people complain. Um, I have too much to do in my life for that, and I'm not gonna. I'm just not gonna sit around. I, they can do what they want with their own lives. I'm just not gonna spend my life doing that. And um, I feel like if people felt the finiteness of their lives, and Julia helped me think about that, just as an economist thinks about money, um, I think we would live bigger lives.
0: Yeah. Now, and of course, the the, the counter argument to that and i think it's a straw man but it comes it comes to me and i'm sure it comes to others is that if sure. i live every day as if i'm going to die at the end of the day i'm not going to do long term things yeah and i'm not yeah. going to pay my bills on time i'm not going to fix the the roof and so which brings me to the study that i found so fascinating that you write about in the book called boring but important <laughs> right. right. Where in this case, asking people to reflect on their values in, in a certain way, help them get through things that were sort of like crappy and boring and unpleasant in the moment yeah. instead of saying, well, I'm just going to if all I have is a day, I'm just going to spend it, you know, with Cameron Diaz sure. and Brad Pitt and Mickey Mouse.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, And you make a great point, actually. And it's not just the straw man. We, We shouldn't just live for the day all the time. But at the same time, we should if we have goals that are important to us, deeply important, and we we look at our values and we set goals around those values. I value my students, for example, at work. So the goal I set around my students and the Value I place in my students is to teach every one of my students as if they're my own daughter and to help them in their career development as if i might help my daughter in career development so that's that is a big hairy audacious goal and it's not just an immediate goal however every day i want to be working to that and if i'm not i have to ask myself was there something more important that i was working toward Uh, and so that's what i mean by living every day as if that might be our last, I want to be working toward a goal. And some of those goals may be long-term goals. That's completely fine. But I want to break them down into things that I would be working on and being aligned with, uh, nearly every day. Does that make sense?
0: Yep. Yep. I think that makes, that makes perfect sense. And, and, you know, and related to this boring, but important study. Yeah. Um, Can you describe that briefly?
1: Sure, in that study, what they did was, it's quite an amazing study. It it was from a researcher at Stanford. And what he did was uh, kids were taking these, what are called STEM courses, and these are math and science courses. And uh, typically, they're hated, you know. Uh, people don't like taking these math and harder math and science courses. And he randomized people into two different groups. One, one group just um, had some sort of control condition they spent about 15 minutes on. And the other group, they spent 15 minutes thinking about the world's problems. And they were asked, what are the top problems in the world? And they might say poverty or climate change or whatever it was. And then they started relating how the course they were going to take might help them in solving some of those problems in the long term. And the kids who were in that group, who were thinking about some of the world's problems and then thinking about how this course could help them figure out and help be one of the solutions to some of those problems, those kids ended up doing much better in the entire semester. They got better grades. And what was even more interesting is that the kids who were typically not good at science and math ended up with the highest improvements, with the greatest improvements in their science and math scores. So once you teach a person about the importance of what they're doing, or once you start thinking more about the importance in a big picture and how it relates to a purpose that you could have in your life, you're going to spend more time on the things that might be considered boring.
0: And then just to be clear, this was one time 15 minute intervention. It wasn't like 15 minute intervention. No, that's it. It was 15 minutes.
1: There are a couple of other studies that are recent out of Cornell University where they took people and simply had them write down their purpose for a couple of minutes versus like, what's the last movie you saw? Who were the characters in the movie? And they'd spend the same amount of time in that control condition writing those down. And then they'd put them on a train that was filled with ethnically diverse people. And they asked them uh, to rate their mood state. And the people who had just written in the control condition, who were in this ethnically diverse train car in Chicago, were much more nervous, scared, afraid, uh, just had very negative mood versus the people who wrote down their purpose. Those people started, were much more accepting and weren't, did not have this negative mood. Uh, there are a number of studies in this area, people who are thinking more about their purpose and more purposeful can plunge their arm into in extraordinarily cold ice water, a bath of very, very cold ice water and hold it in much longer than if they're not thinking about their purpose. It's just amazing that people who are purposeful are more resilient uh, to earthquakes, to tsunamis, to horrible life events, to loss of a loved one, to illness, uh, and very often, in fact, if they're coming back from the Gulf War, uh, you know, often you we talk about post-traumatic stress. The majority of people who have a strong purpose or who can repurpose their lives through all of these horrible life events. End up with post-traumatic growth so they not only are resilient but they actually grow from life's tragedies which we all face I, i'm nothing special in the sense of having life's tragedies um many people i've run into thousands of people who have have various horror, horrifying situations they've had, but do people grow or do they shrivel up into a ball? That's a big question. Do you grow from these things, become wiser, and help other people move through these tragedies, or do you shrivel into a ball?
0: Right, and I, and, uh, I know it's time for you have to to go, but uh, it's one oh my of, gosh, I, yeah, the earthquake, the earthquake, <laughs> Time's the gone. earthquake yes, uh, the, the earthquake studies that you're referring yeah. to it. I got, I just I had this image that like purpose becomes like this gyroscope for people. It's, yeah. Like, it's like North Star. When, yeah, like literally when the earth is shaking, when everything you've, you've experienced <laughs> as foundational and stable is shaking, yeah. then, then purpose takes over and, uh, and, and, yeah. and reorients you towards, towards gravity and stability.
1: It's a great metaphor uh, that you use a gyroscope in that case. It keeps you stable um, when everything is shaking around you, everything is falling apart literally around you. Um, so I, I guess when I got into this field, I did not expect to be doing work on purpose in life. I was a behavioral scientist helping people manage their weight or their stress or their you know, quitting smoking or getting a mammogram. And all of those things are really important. And you know, to try to summarize how you started. Many of the models we were using 20, 30 years ago were focused on fear um, or on purely on skills. But and in terms of motives or motivation, people had we we weren't really exploring the deeper substrate of what drives a person. And it turns out that people like Victor Frankl who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, who went through four concentration camps, who saw that the people in those concentration camps who were surviving tended to be able to maintain a strong sense of purpose. Um, That's that's a lesson to us all. And the idea of being able to build greater purpose in our lives as a substrate for motivation and how to live a good life uh, has become very important in my own work and really a driving force now uh, in me, it, it seems to be a very important answer um, and and very important central puzzle piece in the jigsaw puzzle of our lives and how we live a good life.
0: Right, Yep. And as I was, uh, you know, just a kind of a personal reflection as I was reading about your story and your trajectory and, you know, the way you wrote about uh, Julia's life and death and how it has you know, really you know changed you and and enriched you and and hurt you i i'm just reminded of the the leonard cohen line from from anthem where he says there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in wow and, wow. and that, yeah. that you know you write about being broken open and yeah. that that none, we can we can go through our lives hedonically hoping that we're always going to be Comfortable and happy yeah. and well-regarded, but we all know that that someday something's going to happen. And to you know, I think your your book for me is is sort of a manual for for living now, so that when things happen, I can keep living.
1: It seems like in your podcast and your approach, uh, you have a very similar uh, concept of of life
0: and how to live it. Um, I'm getting there, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of wisdom out there and I'm so appreciative to, to people like you who will take the time to share it.
1: Well, thank um, you. And back at you. Thank you for having a podcast like this.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the most selfish thing I can do is to, uh, is to <laughs> share, just to share Very this cool. stuff and, and, and meet, meet really cool, interesting, um, beautiful souls like yourself. Um, the the well, book, the two books. The book is called Life on Purpose, and then the the graphic novel, which I apologize for calling it a comic book, is uh, oh no, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> on on purpose, uh, and where where can folks find out more about you, both I guess academically and then just uh, as as lay people interested in in what you do?
1: Um, well, th- those books tell a lot about my life. They're they're both fairly autobiographical while at the same time folding in uh, ancient philosophy as well as the latest science. Um, And you can pick those up, uh, hopefully, in your local bookstores. Uh, If not, you can get them through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, places like that. And uh, the other way to learn a little more about me, you can go to Vic Strecker, V-I-C, and then S-T-R-E-C-H-E-R.com, and you can learn more about me. I have a new uh company that i created called jewel health j o o l jewel was my daughter julia's nickname and uh jewel health is has been working on an app that helps you find greater purpose and uh we've been working on that very hard as well
0: great and i just want to, i want to say that the the book is is hilarious it's it's fascinating i was Thanks. i was so ha- i was so happy to see you quoting in full the uh, um, Jules' uh, monologue from, from uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, oh, yeah. Wow.
1: <laughs>
0: like there's, there's just great stuff in there, but also there are, there are sections that are kind of really powerful uh, exercises That's for people who are thinking, okay, well, you found your purpose, and some people found their purpose, but I don't even know how to go about it. You really take people through a process um, a six-step process that's in the book that I think just makes makes it worth the price of admission right there. And so I, I hope people who are listening will, will will check it out. We'll check out vickstrecker.com. And where can is the app publicly available now, or do we have to wait?
1: It's not publicly available right now. Um, we're actually right now talking to organizations about using it, uh, such as the AARP. Uh, That's an interesting group. Once you retire, often you lose your purpose and you're Mm 2.4 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease seven years later if you lose your purpose in your life at retirement. So very important to have it. But we're talking to other groups, too, about that, the VA for Gulf War Vets coming back um, and many other groups. So it hasn't been built yet for uh, direct to consumer, but we're working on that now.
0: Okay, great. In the meantime, the, the book is an app for that. Thank you. And uh, yeah. So, Vic Strecker, thank you so much. I feel I'm so um I'm filled up with uh with my own with a reminder of my own sense of purpose and uh, inspired to to do more more work on it to clarify it and to bring it into my life in more regular intervals. And I just want to, I want to thank you for, for writing the books and for the work you do and for honoring the legacy of Julia and for taking the time today.
1: Thank you. And my best wishes to you and to your podcast listeners.
0: On their behalf, I thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. More than anything else, those reviews help us reach more listeners and spread the message. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 219. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 218 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. If you get the podcast, but not the big change bulldog, you can sign up and also get the stop self-sabotage report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage, S-A-B-O-T-A-G-E. All right, here we go with the thanks to the podcast patrons, and there's a whole bunch more of them, so I'm going to need a big breath and probably two or three. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barrons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Dina, Heron, Janet Flonofsky... Oh, Jen. Let's try that one again. Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Roland Stu Dolnik, Sarah Sturkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet, Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gila Lacer, David, Donna, Hugh Blair, Cyber, Doron, Avizov, Rhymes with Keep the Cheese Off... Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabek, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, rhymes with cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Halmus, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Lafferty, the panda vegan, and Craig Kovic for your generous support of the podcast. Whew. Thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. Check out WillRidenour.com for more of his music. And if you'd like to support the show, please share this and other episodes on social media. Take 45 seconds and write that iTunes review and give me some stars. Hey, by the way, I got a couple of new reviews this week to share with you. And this week I got my very first four-star review. So it's really interesting. Listen to this. First time traveler from Canada writes, I want to start out by saying I've recently discovered this podcast and I'm glad the guests are great. Howard is great overall and the content is perfect. My only small point to add would be that sometimes Howard can come across as pretty cold and blunt to his interviewers and it seems a little awkward. I don't think this is intentional. An example would be in episode 170 when Heather mentioned some of the tragic things that happened to her. A simple, I'm sorry to hear that or something similar would have been less awkward than the silence or redirection. That said, please keep making podcasts. I'm recently entering the plant-based world, and Howard has been a real help with that. Thanks. So, First Time Traveler, thank you so much for leaving me something that I can use to improve. So, I've, I've gotten that feedback before in my personal life, that when things kind of overwhelm me emotionally, I get very sort of cold and clinical, I've made people cry and, uh, and then sort of walked away from it. So this is absolutely not out of the blue, um, but to hear it in the podcast is certainly going to make me more aware, more receptive, and hopefully a better interviewer and a less, less awkward person when dealing with hard things. So thank you so much for that. Another podcast review from Nicole Ramsey from Australia saying, I have recently discovered your podcast, Howard, and being new to a plant-based lifestyle. I'm in week 10. I found your talks and interviews so helpful and supportive while I'm making this transition in my own diet and lifestyle. The range of topics covered is so diverse and your positive, encouraging, and inquisitive style of interview are a real joy to listen to. I feel your interviews get to the core of the issues being raised and I look forward to each new one I often have a long drive to work in the mornings and listening to a plant yourself podcast helps me plant myself in a positive mindset for the day ahead. Thank you and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Nicole. That is music to my ears. And Victoria Doe from Norway writes, insightful and educational, the only podcast that I listen from beginning to end every single episode. Well, in that case, this is the end. Hi, Victoria. (laughs) Thanks for that. So all that's left today is garden news and running news. In garden news this week, it's all about raspberries coming into uh, ripeness and lots and lots of heirloom tomatoes and insanely huge Armenian cucumbers that we didn't even plant. They just sort of volunteered from a previous year. They They are weapons. My main job these days is basil barber. I come out, and every time it rains or the sun shines, the basil grows more of these uh, little florets, and I cut them off to encourage leaf growth, and that takes a lot of time, and I'm left-handed, and all my scissors are right-handed, so it takes even more time, but it's kind of fun. In running news, last week I mentioned that I was feeling really, really sluggish and I couldn't tell if I was overtrained or undertrained, and then I had a conversation with Josh Lajani who's been working with a very well-respected ultra-running coach, and he shared his thoughts with me, and it turns out I have been both undertrained and overtrained. I've been overtraining in that I have been running too hard for each workout, so pushing, and never giving myself easy workouts. And so therefore, I was under training because I was never recovered enough to get to full capacity again. And this after having just interviewed um, Brad Stahlberg on Peak Performance, who talks all about the first part is balancing activity and recovery. So it's time for me to, to listen to my own interviews instead of just sharing them and forgetting about them. All right, that's it for this week. As always, be well.